At this time, our children can make their way uh, towards the back. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we echo the truth of that song, that you are the cornerstone, that you are the center of everything that we have. So I pray, Lord, as we unpack your word, we, look, we expect you to be working in our lives, that we will be looking to what you have to say to us today. I pray that you would speak through me, that it would be your words that we would uh, reflect upon today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's this fictional TV show that was on the air about 10 years ago, and the main character, he starts out as a good guy. He's a good husband. He's a good father. He's a good citizen. He's a high school science teacher, and he's living paycheck to paycheck. He doesn't have very good insurance, and out of nowhere, he gets ambushed by the fact that he has lung cancer and he doesn't even smoke. So now he's told that he only has a couple years left to live, even with treatment. And so this fictional show is a little bit wild. So he has this idea to raise money. He goes out and he starts manufacturing illegal drugs. And he does all this behind his wife's back. Eventually she catches on to what's going on. And uh, she tries to get away from him because he gets deeper and deeper and deeper into this, this terrible lifestyle. And at one point, she even goes out and she has an affair and tells him about it. And even then, she can't get him to leave for the sake of her family. And so as this goes on, a whole year goes by where she's living in this absolute terror and, and fear for her life and the lives of her children. And at one point, uh, this, this husband in this, this TV show embraces her, tr tries to embrace her tenderly, and whispers into her ear, I forgive you. Wow, thanks, right? I mean, sure, she was so thankful. That was really deep on her mind. But, you know, even though um, we can't always identify with something that extreme in our relationships, we often have reasons why we commit particular sins. We often are sinned against, and we're the ones committing the sins. Usually our lives are a mix of both of those things. And though our lives are under God's plan, um, where we are today is often a mix of our own choices, the good choices, the bad choices, the sins and the behaviors of others that have helped us and hurt us. And so as we reflect upon who we are as a person, it takes all of those different things in our lives into account. So we're, as you know, we've been continuing this mini-series um, for the past few weeks on the life of Joseph. And so th this is the fourth and final week of this mini-series on the life of Joseph. And we're going to answer the question today, how does forgiveness shape us into what God desires of us? How does forgiveness shape us into what God desires of us? Now, as we consider the life of Joseph, his brothers his family, we're going to learn what God desires of us, both as forgivers and also as those who are forgiven. So today's passage will begin in Genesis chapter 44 at the very end, but let's recap a little bit about the life of Joseph, just in case you're not familiar with his life. So Joseph was a cocky teenager. He was the youngest, well, the second youngest of 12 brothers, at this time, he was a tattletale, and his father clearly saw him as the favorite and made that quite well known. 
So he was very obnoxious to his brothers, and he would brag about these dreams that he'd have of ruling over them. And his older brothers, they actually sell him into slavery, and they tell their father he was attacked by wild animals. So then he's taken to Egypt by these slave traders. There he's wrongly accused of making a pass at his uh, master's wife. And so he's thrown wrongly into prison for that. And while he's in prison, he's known as it for interpreting dreams. And he interprets the dreams of a cupbearer. And this cupbearer, like Joseph said, would be released from prison three days later. Well, guess what happens? He's released from prison, and then Joseph gets stuck in prison for another two years until the time came that the king needed, or the Pharaoh needed his dreams interpreted. So he goes before Pharaoh, and what does the Pharaoh do? Pharaoh um, makes him the number two in the entire country of Egypt. And so Joseph takes control. He, through these seven years of plenty, he saves everything up to protect Egypt during the seven years of famine that were to come. So lo and behold, this famine's huge. It's everywhere. So Joseph's brothers come from the, land, the promised land into Egypt. They don't recognize their brother, but they're there begging him to sell them food. So that's where we pick up in this story. And of course, what happens is Joseph uh, sends them back with some food one time and tells them to bring their brother back. They bring their brother back, and Joseph doesn't want to let the brother, the younger brother, Benjamin, go. And Judah steps in to uh, take his place. So that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 44. Verse 33. Genesis 44, verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? This is Judah talking. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Joseph could not control himself, before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him, and Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then a few verses later, verse 14. Then he, Joseph, fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And then we'll pick up in chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. 
So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are this today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So remember our question that we said, how does forgiveness shape us into what God desires of us? And we're going to consider this question first from the perspective of the one offering forgiveness. So first we see the forgiver looks for God's purpose for allowing the suffering. The forgiver looks for God's purpose for allowing the suffering. Now last week, Pastor Marv, he showed us in Joseph's life that we may need to go through prison, so to speak, before we are promoted in our lives. And that oftentimes, suffering prepares us for power. One of the big questions we have of God is, why does he allow us to suffer? It's an age-old question. Romans 5, 3-4 tells us, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You know, most people recognize that after the fact how difficulties in life make them stronger. This is not just a Christian principle. It's a principle we see that people in the world generally understand. You go through a hard time, and oftentimes you come out stronger and more resilient. But I think it's a lot harder for us when we've been greatly sinned against somebody close to us. Often we prefer the saying, shame me once, shame on you, shame me twice, shame on me. We may learn a lesson when someone lets us down. Even if we're willing to forgive them, we often don't think about how God may be using that injustice in our lives for good. We're too focused on the problem. Now, Joseph went so far in his forgiveness of his brothers that in chapter 45, he said this, Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That many people should be kept alive. Next, we see that the forgiver has sin needing forgiveness. The forgiver has sin needing forgiveness. Now, although Joseph doesn't say it, perhaps he has a glimpse into how his own sins and even his father's sins played a role into where he ended up. Now, had he just been a typical annoying brother, you know, a younger brother, perhaps his brothers wouldn't have sold him into slavery. Now, if his dad didn't treat him like the obvious favorite all the time, maybe Joseph wouldn't have acted like such a punk to begin with, right? But this doesn't excuse the brothers' terrible sins against Joseph. But when I think when Joseph um, broke down the first time in front of his brothers and finally told them who he was, 
I think it was because he saw the effect of his own sins and the sins of his father and how deeply his brothers had been wounded. Maybe he'd never really thought about it before. Think about, that's why I started today's passage in chapter 44 at the very end, where it said, where Judah, one of the older brothers, he said, how can I go back to my father if, if, if the boy isn't with me? Now, we don't know the actual age of Benjamin. He could have been as young as maybe 16 or 17, maybe in his late 20s or something. But he wasn't like a little child at this point. So think about this a second. Judah's afraid of not going back with Benjamin. He's not afraid about not going back with Reuben or any of the other ten brothers. Only Benjamin is the one that will break his father's heart. And he's just accepted this as a, real, a reality, that his dad cares more about Benjamin and would be really sad if Benjamin didn't come back. And that's why he offers to stay in his place. And I think behind the tough exterior of Judah, with a family, with a family of his own at this point, is a wounded son that had long accepted that his dad um, didn't love him as much as Benjamin and Joseph. This is not the typical case of envy, of envy that brothers and sisters have among one another, where each one thinks the other one is the favorite. Jacob made it abundantly clear that Joseph and, and Benjamin, the sons of his favorite wife, Rachel, were also his favorite sons. And I think Joseph knew that he played a part into that dysfunctional favoritism in that family. He wasn't just resented for being the favorite at no part of his own, but he actively gloated and he rubbed it in his brother's faces that he was the favorite. And uh, this, he didn't do this as a little child. He was doing this when he was 17 years old. And that's the point in time that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. So the third principle I think we see is that the forgiver owns 100% of their contribution to conflict. The forgiver owns 100% of their contribution to conflict. Ken Sand, he's an author of a book that I read a few years ago called Resolving Everyday Conflict. And he makes the case that when humans are in conflict with one another, there's usually two sets of sinners. Not that obviously both people are sinners, but even in that conflict, usually both people in conflict have done something. And his point is that he encourages even those who have been sinned greatly against to own 100% of their contribution. So if they've only contributed 10% to that conflict, then they should own 100% of that 10%, right? If they've only contributed 5% of that conflict, then they should own 100% of that 5%. And obviously it's human nature to only see ourselves owning a small piece of conflict, right? And that's why we need the Holy Spirit's help. When we experience conflict with others, we should pray as David prays in Psalm 139, 23 to 24, where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thought, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a prayer the Holy Spirit will answer. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, but the Holy Spirit does not bring shame. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. If he convicts you of owning a particular piece of a conflict, then you need to confess that conflict. He may, he may ask you to apologize to that person for your contribution to that conflict or own what you've done. 
but the Holy Spirit's not bringing shame upon sins that he's confessed. Now, in fairness, when we evaluate conflict, sometimes there is one party that is largely driving the conflict. Think about King David and Saul. David didn't do anything but Saul other than defeat the enemy that Saul wanted defeated, right? Goliath. And if you, as you read the account of David's life, you can't think of anything that David did that gave Saul an excuse to act the way he did. So sometimes there is one person that's primarily responsible. Um, in Romans 12, 18, it tells us, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Now, owning your share, no matter how small it is in a human conflict, it does not mean that you diminish, it does not mean you excuse the wrong committed by the other person. Saying, I could have done X, Y, Z better, doesn't excuse the person, the other person, who has a responsibility to own 100% of their contribution to the conflict. The fourth principle we see is the forgiver grieves personal wounds and losses. The forgiver grieves personal losses and wounds. In recognizing how God used the sins of his brothers for good, see, Joseph did not deny their intentions. In chapter 50, 19, Joseph said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We see Joseph break down and weep multiple times in response to his brothers. You see, part of grieving personal losses and wounds is allowing yourself to cry. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now, even Jesus is recorded as weeping. Where when La his friend Lazarus dies, he even knows that he's planning on raising Lazarus from the dead, and yet he's still overcome with emotion and grief. Grieving and crying and dealing with losses and wounds is something a healthy person does. That this is true for women, this is, especially, is also true for men. That grieving, even crying, is part of healing. Now, Jesus is recorded as weeping. So we know if Jesus cried, we, any of us guys here ought, ought to allow ourselves to cry when we experience grief. If we're going to be healthy followers of Jesus, then we need to embrace grief as Jesus modeled it for us. We don't know what would have happened, but I believe Joseph's ability to clearly see God's hand in his situation was because he had done the hard work of grieving his losses. He had done the hard work of working through the forgiveness that God was calling him to offer his brothers. See, seeing God redeeming the bad to bring about good, it doesn't mean denying that the other person's sin. It doesn't mean pretending that it wasn't a big deal or that you were wounded greatly. Sometimes it requires confrontation. It sometimes go, requires going to that person to bring about reconciliation. And we see Joseph's a desire even to not bring shame on his brothers. He tells them, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And then forgiveness, while ultimately a decision to leave justice in God's hands, is still a process. Beyond not retaliating, Joseph had reached a place of not wanting him to experience the shame of their sin. Now, this doesn't mean he didn't want them to be convicted of their sin. But he had reached a place in his forgiveness in which he wanted, for his part, to release them 
from guilt. So we see the forgiver places justice in God's hands. The forgiver places justice in God's hands. Remember in chapter 50, verse 19, Joseph told his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now when Pastor Marv led us through the account of Joseph with Potiphar's wife in chapter 39, when Joseph refused Potiphar's wife's advances, he said, how, could I, how then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? When we accept the fact that all of our sins, all of them are ultimately against a perfect and holy God, that helps us to be able to extend forgiveness to others. See, if this person over here sins against me, only the sin that he's committed against me is against me. Whereas all the sin I commit, not just what I contribute to that conflict, all the sins I commit are against a perfect and holy God. And when we recognize that, God helps us to be able to extend forgiveness to others. So, so far, we've been answering the question, how does forgiveness shape us into what God desires of us? How does forgiveness shape us into what God desires of us? We've been looking at this through the perspective of the one offering forgiveness, and now we're going to consider the question through the perspective of the brothers, those that are forgiven. Like we said, we're actually both the forgiven and the forgivers at different times in our lives. So the forgiven trust the sincerity of the forgiver. The forgiven trust the sincerity of the forgiver. Now, I skipped over reading chapters 46, 47, 48, 49, and the first part of 50. I'm going to do that now. Just kidding. I won't read five chapters here. <laughs> you can read them if you want. But what it does is it goes through um, the life of Joseph, um, his brothers, and his father, and their families during the time after they moved to Egypt and settled in the land of Goshen. And now it's at the end of Jacob's life, and he's just died. And... Joseph told his brothers, um, in verse 50, 15 to 17, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, it may not have been their intention, but the brothers wounded Joseph again, I think. Here he had forgiven their sins many, many years before. He treated them with kindness for decades, set them and their families up, to, to thrive and do well. And here they were, you know, worried that he's going to now get back at them for what they did to them when in their youth. Now, I don't know for sure, but I highly suspect that the brothers were lying about what Jacob said to them. Think about this for a second. Jacob, was, Jacob himself was a schemer, right? So do you, does it make much sense he say, hey, you know what? Go tell your brother when I'm dead not to exact revenge. He literally, before he died, he had all the brothers together and gave blessings to them. Wouldn't that have been the perfect time to say, hey, now, Joseph, 
I want you to treat your brothers with kindness and not exact revenge upon them. In front of them and in front of each other, wouldn't that have been more likely? So I highly suspect that Jacob never told the brothers this. The brothers came up with this plan in order to, you know, uh, try to win Joseph over, even though they didn't need to. And you know where I think they learned this stunt? Think about Jacob's earlier life. So remember Jacob? He tricked his brother Esau for his inheritance, and then he ran off. And in, he, he married Leah and Rachel, had, had 11 of the children, and then they returned from, the, from there and went back to the promised land, and he runs into Esau. And what does he do? Does he go up to Esau himself and apologize and try to be reconciled to his brother? No. He takes his least favorite wife and his least favorite sons, sends them up with some donkeys and goats or whatever, and tries to appease Esau, or appease Esau by offering him gifts. And so he, he's, the brothers have grown up learning this method of dealing with conflict from their father. So like I've said, we've both been on both, we've been on both sides of being the forgiver and the forgiven in our lives. So if you've experienced forgiveness from someone you wronged, then take them at the word. If that's a struggle, then you need to take that to the Lord and ask him to help you. Because sometimes trusting people that you've wounded is a process as well. But don't wound them again by not being willing to trust them in the present. Next, we see the forgiven back their trust with action. The forgiven back their trust with action. Instead of scheming to appease Joseph, they should have taken their insecurities, they should have taken their insecurities to the Lord in prayer and then let the chips fall where they may. That's what they should have done. That's what their action should have been, is to go to the Lord in prayer and then pr trust that Joseph would not retaliate against them. And instead of first going to him and asking forgiveness, um, imagine if they had done that instead, if they had gone to Joseph and just one more time asked them for forgiveness. Maybe that would have been a healthier approach. But certainly trying to scheme against him in that way um, is not the action that they should have taken. Next, we see the forgiven deal with the mess that led to the offense. The forgiven deal with the mess that led to the offense. It almost rhymes, doesn't it? The forgiven deal with the mess that led to the offense. Close. Not quite. Well, we already mentioned how matter-of-factly Judah accepted the fact that his father loved Benjamin more than him and the rest of his brothers, except Joseph, of course. They all had some daddy issues, probably, that they had not worked through. Now, regardless of Jacob's intentions, his favoritism, which he learned from his father Isaac, wounded his sons deeply. And I think sometimes the deepest wounds that we carry, they are not from vile and terrible people. The deepest wounds we sometimes care, carry are from people who we generally respect, who we view as good people, because they oftentimes were. Maybe it was an unkind word or something that was said or done that impacted us deeply. And because we respect that person, we may feel guilty, actually, for feeling wounded by them. And we, don't, we push that off because we don't want to face the fact that something that was said to us wounded us. And as we see, Judah and the less loved brothers, they respected, they wanted to honor and protect their father in his old age. They likely wanted to earn his love and his affection. And beneath their tough exteriors were little boys still wounded, still craving the affection of their daddy. 
that they never experience. And they're probably wondering to themselves, why aren't they loved like Joseph and Benjamin are? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the way I am? And so they, they've suppressed those feelings of abandonment from their father deep down that were hurt because they probably respected him. Now, this does not excuse the sin, but when we struggle with some sort of sin pattern or, or we really messed up in some way, sometimes wounds that we've never processed are what drove the behavior in the first place. Sometimes those, those wounds that we pushed beneath the surface and put a tough exterior on, we, we then walk through life wounded and more likely to hurt others, even though that's not our desire. Well, first, God offers forgiveness. But, uh, God, but God is also calling us to deal with the wounds and deal with the mess that leads to the offense. Maybe that means to work through that. That means sharing your struggle, sharing the wounds with a brother and sister in Christ. Maybe it means sharing with a pastor or with a Christian counselor or someone who can help work you work through those wounds in your life. And finally, we see forgiven believers become what they've been declared to be. Forgiven believers become what they've been declared to be. Now, while anyone can experience reconciliation um, and forgiveness with others, forgiveness has a special place in the lives of believers because we have the life of Jesus at work in us through his spirit. Ephesians 2.4 says this, He, Jesus, himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul goes on to say in that passage that the hostility has been killed through the body of the cross. Notice this killing of the hostility. It is not something that we're looking forward to. It is a past completed action. The, host the hostility has been killed and has been put to death on the cross. So it's a, it's a, if you think about it this way, it's a positional peace, a positional reconciliation that believers already have with one another, whether they're experiencing it or not. But Paul goes on to say in that chapter, verse 21 and 22, that we are growing into, in other words, it's a continuous process, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So then this reconciliation, it's a process which believers become what they've already been declared to be. The hostility between you and other believers has already been killed. Are you experiencing it? Are you surrendering to the Holy Spirit to bring, to bring out the healing and reconciliation that only he can bring. See, this is not a try-harder thing. You didn't knock down the wall of hostility. Jesus knocked it down on the cross. And Paul tells us then that in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Jesus gave us, not the pastor, Jesus gave us as believers the ministry of reconciliation. So this includes reconciliation between us and God, but also among one another as believers. 
So today we've, we've considered how does forgiveness shape us into what God desires of us. We said that the forgiver looks for God's purpose for allowing the suffering. The forgiver has sins needing forgiveness, owns 100% of their contribution to the conflict, grieves personal losses and wounds, and places justice in God's hands. And the forgiven, they trust the sincerity of the forgiver, they back their trust with action, they deal with the mess that led to the offense, and forgiven believers become what they've been declared to be. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that we brought nothing for reconciliation, that the reconciliation and peace was found that while we were still sinners, that you sent Jesus to die in our place. And that through that action, you broke down the wall of hostility. And you desire us as believers to become what you've already declared us to be. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, you would help us if there are wounds that we carry that we need to um, receive healing for, that we would bring others into that process. I pray, Lord, that you would help us forgive those who've wronged us. And for those of us who've, who've, who feel guilt or feel shame, that we would recognize that um, if we've confessed our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. And I pray, Lord, that we would experience your freedom from guilt. Help us to live in a healthy way that glorifies you through the strength of Jesus in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.